welcome to grief is my side hustle. I am pretty hyper this morning because I am so excited to be sitting down with this podcast guest. Asa Merritt, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited too. We have a shared person in common named Jackson who does podcast stuff for us. He sent me a note about your project and about your work. And I immediately wrote to my assistant, get this person on our podcast immediately. So way back in the day, when I originally heard about the project that you were working on and why you were working on it, I was really enthusiastic. And I just said to you off mic, and then I just can't believe how freaking good it is. I just can't believe I sat, it was one of those moments where I was like, I was supposed to get gas. And I was like, but I have to, I have to wait for this episode to end. So can you tell folks a little bit about your project that we are talking about and how you come into the world of grief and loss? Yes, I can. So the project, just so that everyone knows what it is we're talking about is an audio drama. So it feels like a TV miniseries. There's 12 episodes and it's not a reader. It's not an audiobook. It's a full cast. So we hired eight actors to read these various parts. Great actors. We're yeah. so lucky. The lead actor is Stephanie Shu. You might know her from Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yes, we and do know her. She was incredible. And that was just to have her believe in this was a huge vote of confidence for the project. So anyways, that's what it is. So you can go listen to this thing on Audible. That's how you find it. But yeah, that's what the experience is. And I recognize, and I break it down like this because I and I know a lot of people have never listened to a full cast audio drama. So that's what this is. It's about a young pastor, Stephanie Shu, who has to take over a church when the senior pastor kills himself. So he's like this huge figure in the church. He's been the pastor there for 20 years. She's this outsider. Not everybody loves her. And from nowhere, she's young. And from nowhere, this man dies by suicide and she has to step into his shoes. So it's about her processing her grief. This man was her mentor, her spiritual guide in a lot of ways. And for him to do this undoes her. So it's about her processing that and grieving. And it's also about her leading this community. Mm -hmm. So this church community is torn apart by this loss. It undoes them in a lot of ways as well. And at first, the suicide's a secret. Yeah. And I won't give everything away, but there's a lot at stake for this community at well, as well. And so that's the journey of the show. It's her journey through grief, her journey through leadership, the journey of this community responding, growing, fighting, healing as a result of this traumatic death. So that's the project. It came from me because a dear friend of mine died by suicide. And it was one of these moments where I just had to engage with this. It engendered myriad feelings that were simply unprocessable. I know mm. that's not a word, but, but that's exactly yeah. what happened. I didn't have words for this. It was unlike any other emotional train wreck. We There's all different kinds. There's a breakup, there's loss, there's other kinds of deaths. And we get hit tr by trains in our life, but this was one that came hard and fast and I wasn't expecting and knocked me down in a way that I, I really didn't have the tools mm. to manage these feelings. So I tried to write about it. And the journey of Pastor Alexis, in a lot of ways, was me like writing through a journey my my own grief journey so that's my orientation to the project that's my lived experience and then of course this piece was really informed not of course and i guess that's the point i made a priority of really incorporating a lot of expertise and a lot of experts and a lot of accountability experts in terms of narrative around this project to bring in not just my lived experience, but the more collective wisdom of contemporary understanding of suicide. That That is a really good synopsis. And I wanted to jump in and say, and this and that, and because it's so multi-layered. And I said to you off mic that my husband is English and in England, they have weekly radio shows. They're like, re they have the kind of dragnet style cop shows. They also have ones that are a bit like sitcoms. They're meant to make you laugh out loud. 
And we just, we don't have that genre here anymore, right? It's a little bit old fashioned. And there is something, and you and I were talking about it a minute ago, really powerful about using your own imagination to create these characters. So I also recognize the narrator's voice. One of my weird things is that I, if you were to quiz me and say whose voice is this on what's like a Ford commercial, I can tell you who it is. So I know the narrator is also an actor that I can picture. But for the rest of the cast, I was fascinated to see what I imagined the congregation to look like, what I imagined the teenager to Melissa to look like. I was so grateful to be given an opportunity to do that, right? Because again, you and I had a quick second with this. Since someone has read to me out loud, which is, I I have done a little bit of that in my adulthood, but since that process, you don't really get to do this with your mind. And it's alternately exciting and and quieting. And it's different than listening to an audiobook. I just, I want to know a little bit about that modality and how you were drawn to that. I know it's partly your expertise, but I, I think it's really yeah. unique and distinct. Yeah, I've thought so much about this and it gets it gets heady, right? Where it's like, when we read a novel, we're exclusively using our literary imagination, right? We're seeing words and we're generating images in our mind's eye from specks of ink on a piece of paper. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have what I've in my own, again, own musings on, this is no official term. Like what I've thought of as our kind of cinematic imagination, which is more visceral, it's more spatial. It's like a little bit more of the sort of material world and it doesn't solely exist in our brain. And I think that audio drama sits between them with all the tools of post-production, of design. And of course, these English audio dramas have been doing it for 90 years or whenever those radio plays start coming on the scene, there's been Foley. There has been the kind of SFX and music. And today with contemporary software, like the sort of possibility for creating sonic texture is super rich. And so those elements do give us this cinematic kind of experience, but there's a real kind of exploration that's happening in the audio drama space right now, where a lot of people, in my view, are trying to emulate a cinematic experience through audio drama, right? Mm -hmm. Very high tech mics are being used. People recommend that you listen on bioral headphones, which like really creates a sense of distance and direction. It feels like you're in the room with the people. Yeah. Which is all very cool. In my mind, however, the form functions better when it leans in the direction of accessing your literary imagination rather than being in the room. If you have a, a couple who's fighting rather than sitting there right between them. And I think it's, I think you, you have more empathy for them if you're actually on the side of the room watching and listening to them and seeing and experiencing this couple in pain whereas if you're right there it's like disorienting because you're just in between two human beings and it's so that's a lot of the sort of formal exploration that's happening and like I said this kind of gets heady but I think it's really critical to thinking about what audio is as an art form and how it activates our imagination and how it does have this kind of special magical quality and we have these childhood experiences where maybe we had a parent who read to us while we slept or sitting around again in the UK I've read all these accounts from playwrights who have these like vivid images of being around like a fire in the country with your grandpa and everyone just being (laughs) silent and just so there's a real magic there but yeah anyway the point is it's acting on our imagination in different ways right and sound works in different ways. Hearing words, hearing senses, activate some things, hearing Foley, hearing sound effects. And then of course there's music. So this is how I have thought about the form and have tried to create effective audio drama is like really interrogating all these questions. Like how does this kind of sound affect us? How does this kind of sound affect us, et cetera? I feel, and I said this to you a second ago, like I could talk about this for six hours because from my seat as someone who's trained in trauma, and I spend a lot of time talking people very simplistically, right, through 
why journaling through grief is so good for you because neural pathways get damaged by the trauma. And often that impacts memory. It impacts the immediate memory. And so people will have really cloudy sort of brain fog. There's a lot of reasons why that happens. And one really simple way to invite the neural pathways to reopen up, and maybe that will also bring the memories back online, it almost always does, is to simply journal. In some format, it doesn't, but it's a meta journal. I'm not asking you to go in and say, and then this happened, and then this happened. You don't want to be in between the two people in the couple, just as you're describing. You need to be sitting from the side with an observing ego in order to stay regulated. So I'm really obsessed with this idea that people have their instinctive ways, right? And those instincts about grieving and how to process their grief are often laid inside their instincts about how to live a good, interesting life. So people who say to me, I picked up my violin, they, in order to grieve, I spent hours with the violin. Often music is a part of their life and they just they maybe weren't using their violin or maybe they are a professional violin player. And so writing a piece made sense. It's just fascinating to hear that you already had this intellectual understanding of the modality And then, as I'm hoping everyone who's listening to this is rushing to Audible to listen to it right now, you see what you describe is the the overlay of your personal experience and I think the expertise. Like I'm really interested to hear about how you created the characters. I'm really interested to know, because I don't think we said the name of it, actually. I don't think we said it's called Seven Sermons, Six Sermons. Six six Sermons, yeah. I want there to be another one. Six Sermons, that I'm really interested in the religious background of it. I'm really interested in that, because again, in grief work, damage around people's spiritual sense of themselves or their spiritual practice is pretty common. So I asked about nine questions, which I'm prone to do any thread you want to pull on i want you to love that and thank you for sharing all that you know that's informative what you described about the damage to neural pathways reconstructing them that's i so want to learn more about that so thank you for introducing that yeah per the religion piece that initially was also a formal decision yes as you said the show is called six sermons there are six sermons in this piece they are not boring sermons. No, they aren't. These are all dramatic events. People are responding. Things are happening. Physically restrained in one of them, just to give people an idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If you were in these churches, you would feel things. You would feel uncomfortable. You feel like you got ex- your collection plate money's worth. For- <laughs> exactly. You got your ticket. You yeah. Did. It started, the whole direction of church started because I did a gig for a seminary. It was just it was a gig, an audio producing gig where I was listening to all these sermons and pulling excerpts from them and making a highlight reel of this workshop that the seminary hosted about sermons. And so it was incredible because I was like, oh my God, this is such amazing audio. This would make such amazing audio. So that was one of the first inklings of what brought me into the world of, of the church. And then engaging in a deep way with elements of Christianity would just afforded immense opportunities to engage with these existential questions. Like religion is existential. And my experience of losing my friend was existential. It was just like, if he could do this, someone I respected so much, like maybe there's something to it. It really became viable, plausible, attractive. And of course that is at odds with so much of our life affirming experience and and all the collective love and the sort of breadth of the project of our life and all the positivity there. But this really challenged that in a really profound way. Yeah. And, uh, and in an existential way, it was like, okay, cool. The Bible close where I went to school, we, we had to read the Bible. It went to Columbia, a secular school, but we, the Bible was part of the curriculum and I was very much treating the Bible like literature digging in to these texts to be like, okay, what is really being said here? This is kind of wild. This is this interpretation. And so it was just, it's just a rich palette to explore existential ideas. But if you came into a kitchen and there's just like vast ingredients and you can make what you want out of it, 
that's how I felt with engaging with these theological questions. The show is not religious. It just provided an idiom for this main character to be like, what the heck now? What? So it, that's why it was set there. Yeah, again, it was like a great, it was a great palette. It was a great, it just had so much to work with in terms of giving her things to bounce off with in her own grief journey, her own processing. One of the, I think it's in episode five, but one of the episodes, she, the pastor, the new young pastor, talks about the pastor who has died and describes sort of the metaphysics around energy. And I I have little chills when I'm talking about that because that is the most comforting description of religion to me. A second ago, you just said it's not really religious and it isn't except that it pulls on all the threads of why people crave religion to help us understand something when we are twisting in a terrified state. And and the person who is the leader, two of the leaders have their own crises, that crisis, whatever the plural of crisis is, that we see. But the way in which you have the way in which you have each character say what they say feels to me so brilliant. There is a teenager who is wise beyond her years. The way in which she talks to her best friend is in kid language and so wise and grown up and filled with so much wisdom. But the concept of we we want to mourn in community, we want to be healed and held in community is something I think people move towards religious organizations for. And even though it's not religious, you're offering us both the best and the hardest parts of what religion does. It's just brilliant. (laughs) It's just so well done. It's like watching pairs figure skating or something where you're like, how, how are you? And there's this, this narrator, which really does feel there's a, it's a wonderful life kind of feeling to the narrator, which is I'm imagining maybe has a little is intentional, but also you're never left feeling all of the existential dread, right? There is soothing in the modality of being told the story, right? So what I want to know about is, are were you working out your own, one of your own, like, how do I hold the story of my friend who took yeah, his yeah, own yeah. life? I love that question. Yeah. And I love what you just said about we're in the existential dread, but it's still, I guess it's just for me, like just naming the feelings is healing right it's like i'm sitting here telling you that i was like oh wow maybe i should kill myself maybe i should really consider this which is about the darkest thing you can say but i just think that by naming feelings all of a sudden we're being human that's where we can meet people that's where people can meet us and yeah just yeah, that's this process. It's when we try to take these things on alone. It's when that we don't say what we consider an unthinkable thought. And I'm sure you know this all too well. There's so much like grief around guilt or like just my, my dad keeps telling me how he's going to die all the time. And I'm just like, dad, you're just not dying. So just cut the crap. You know what I mean? And and then I found myself thinking this this like terrible thought where I was like spending my and he's always telling me what he's leaving me right he's always telling me sure, it's his know, way and i'm just always thinking to myself like oh or not always but i caught myself once i'm like spending this inheritance in my head which is no great sum but i still was like he keeps telling me about it something and i just felt so awful about it and i told my partner about it and she was like, listen, it's not your fault. He's always talking about it. And so that that's just such a, it's an intense thought that is not necessarily a form of grief, but adjacent to it. And it's just, I think that for me, like just naming these intense yeah. thoughts, putting it in her, and that's the beauty of fiction is that we can mediate a little bit there, like putting in her mouth, these feelings that I was having, just naming them 
even if they were awful, even if they were dark, is was essential to what was ultimately an incredible light thing, which was like a healing process. And I know for myself that I think like to the extent that I could have healed from this, I have. And I think that is because to the best of my ability, I got all those feelings out on paper, right. put them in a human, put them in a room, put them in a room with other people, all these things. And, and ultimately it's a, uh, the story is like a triumph. And I think that was my journey as well. It was like to, to employ a biblical metaphor here, went to the wilderness and then came back. And I think that is because I wrote it. And I think that's why it's strong. I think that's why it's good work because it wasn't, it wasn't easy to go there. And that's such complex feelings. And the work of the rewrites and the rewrites is to take these bundle of feelings that you just slap on the page and further articulate them. And say, oh, this is what I'm really saying. This is what I'm really feeling. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. The editorial process is like therapy, I think, because it asks you to get really clear, right? Like when people come in and they tell me, a hundred things in one sentence. My job as a therapist is to say, it sounds to me that you're angry. I'm just culling it down to what, what is the part that needs, what needs out? What needs to come through? What do we need to spend our time on? What's waving its hand at us? And there's going to be a lot of other words about it. And I think, so I think I love the editorial process for that. I love having to get very specific because it is a way of knowing yourself and your own process. So you wrote during grief, I wrote during grief. And I, I think for, for people who want to understand themselves better and language can give them that, that is amazing. I think there are a lot of grievers out there who just the getting it out of themselves so that the trauma that landed inside their body doesn't have to reside inside there. And I have mixed feelings about that because I'm not sure I'm there. I feel like if it's an infection, I think the traumas maybe are still running around in there. So I'm still, I, it's all a work in progress. I want to ask about the concept of suicide and like specifically, because I think that has a kind of homicide, also overdose, disenfranchised loss that just, it's like an IED, like people don't want to touch it. They don't know how to approach it. And I think a minute ago, when you were talking about your own process, you were using some words in there that if we had a hundred grief experts in the room, they would all be nodding their heads and saying, yeah, it's totally normal. And as someone who identifies as a grief expert, it always breaks my heart when people are talking about their process and going through their process and feeling like there is some isolation aloneness. When someone who is pivotal to your understanding of the world dies, you thinking of also dying and maybe making that happen on your is actually pretty normal. It's a pretty normal, right? It's like talking to a kid who's, I don't know if I like boys or girls. And you're like, you're 11. That's pretty normal. But you'll get more information inside your system. Like they're, my kids, I call them, your growing chemicals are going to point you in a direction and then head in that direction. See if that works. If not, head in a different direction. But grief is a lot like that, I think. And unfortunately, the field has not figured out how to break through in pop culture the way that like people that hold their breath when they have the hiccups. Like we we haven't given people enough tools to say, just say out loud, I'm having suicidal thoughts. They don't have to be dark and dangerous. Many of the pieces that I wrote in my book, one very specifically that I wrote about feeling exhilarated when I learned that my mother died, that multiple times in my life, I have had a sensation and it's a little bit happening now in my body that I can only describe as like thrilling or almost joy when something unbelievably horrific has happened. And I carry the first time I had that experience, I was really little and I carried the shame of what kind of a person. And then when I was in my mid thirties, I met a neuroscientist that was like, oh yeah, let me tell you why that happens. Adrenaline surges through your body. It's a protective measure. It's actually trying to protect you from formulating memories of this horrific moment. It's trying to save your life and it happens to a lot of people. And I sat with a client one time and he was sobbing, telling me a story about his brother's death. And I was like, oh my God, I know exactly what this man is about to tell me. 
He's about to tell me that he thinks he was happy. And he did tell me, and I was like, I'm going to tell you what a neuroscientist told me, but it doesn't need to be me and this guy. We could tell, we could just tell everybody so that all the people who hear these things are then like, yeah, actually that doesn't mean it might mean something about me. I'll know that if it stays right. If the suicidality grows and if it stays, then it means something about me and boy, I need to tell some people. But the fact of it may in fact just be totally fucking normal. So you said it in your piece. I'm saying it now so that the people who are experiencing that or have experienced that, maybe they can just let the birds of shame of that go because it's actually normal. Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think this is like the constant struggle not just with grief or mental health, but in so many areas of life that like there are bounds that have been prescribed about what can be said, do you know? Never good. Sex. And we've had this amazing moment of sex positivity. And it's just, I just feel like there's been with asterisks, with exception, except fully acknowledging what's happening in the U.S. with like legislation, but I think a broader cultural moment, you look at Gen Z, you look at where sex positivity has been really encouraged and it's amazing, but it's honestly, okay, if I have a fetish for, of not touching someone, but like having, talking dirty through a pane of glass, something amazing, we're not exactly, you can go on FetLife and talk about that. That's right. That's cool. But you're not exactly bringing it up necessarily. Like the, I think like when friendships or relationships like are really thriving, like maybe you can, but the, I think for a lot of people, the number of people that they could have that conversation with is quite narrow. So it just exists across the board. So it's, it's what can we say when someone dies of suicide? Oh, I'm sorry. Or, oh, I'm sad. Or yeah, it's been hard. Or, oh man, your brother died. Duh. And there's just, there are, there's like almost like a sheet of things you're allowed to say. It's almost like a code green, yellow, and red. Okay, I could say something that's in the direction of, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it was a relief. It was coming and it's clear. Maybe that's in the yellow territory, but the red territory is, thank God he finally died. I can move on with my life. I'm so happy for your client. And it's just, yeah, yeah, I think it's exactly exactly that. And I think the project of professionals like yourself, and to some extent, like writers being really deliberate about the stories they're putting into the world. What does this say that this story can be? This larger project is like just expanding, expanding what is accepted, giving, empowering feelings that are not finding the light. One of the things that I think is the deepest and broadest gift of, and it runs through all of the episodes, is when people go against what they know is right for them. That never works. So even when you were just talking about sex positivity, like the person who wants to talk dirty through a pane of glass, that's the person who needs the microphone because there may not be a hundred thousand people who get off on that. So we need to help them find the person who also is into the pane of glass fetish activity. We have this way of closing down these conversations into these tight balls that really doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't work. And so what I think the, again, I don't want to give away the series, but I think what is the declining mental health of one character who absolutely knows that the hard needs to be spoken about and, and you feel it. It's a little bit, I don't know if you've seen Dear Evan Hansen, but like in the very beginning of the setup, you're like, oh, this is not going to go well. Like at the, the moment that it's being decided that we can't tell the truth here, that it's going to have real ramifications. And what I would say about the world of grief and loss and grief and loss being grief is the energy in reaction to whatever the loss is. And the loss for a lot of people is not being able to be themselves, not being able to tell the truth, not being able to live their internal reality out externally. So what what we find in the moments of your series is that there are powerful questions. People ask, are you okay? It is, that phrase is all over the place. I want to ask you about that in particular around suicidality, because I think there is, there are a bunch of camps. There's a lot of tents around the camp about whether or not we hold responsibility, the people who are around to notice that someone is not okay. And if we notice, are we going to be able to help in that moment? The person who is not okay, it's their responsibility to let the world know, like I, 
I felt like you were really playing with that. And so can you talk a little bit about the purpose of that language and maybe even where you fall in that continuum? Yeah, I love that. That's tough. At a base level, just since we're here on a podcast and people are listening to this, just it's completely conclusively demonstrated that asking people if they're thinking about killing themselves does not give them an idea does not increase the chances of that and just to get that little psa out there do not be afraid of asking someone that all the research suggests that if anything that's going to help someone that doesn't mean it's easy to ask that question right so it's okay cool great thank you for that study asa like i think six sermons involves none of this is easy for anyone right and pastor alexis has a command of a lot of mental health research like she she knows a lot of these things and so even when these feelings are eating up eating her up inside it's like there's this competition between her public self and her private self and her public self needs to appear a certain way for this community meanwhile this private self is not finding articulation she's alone in this grief and it does eat her up and i think that is part of that this question too, right, is it's okay to talk about your grief too, right? So the sort of the most direct relevant question to suicide is like someone who's suicidal or at risk for suicide is to ask them. But I think also what this project tries to explore as well is what about the person who's grieving suicide, right? Let's say you have a friend in your life who lost a good friend and you didn't know that friend and your friend's suffering I think it's hard or not necessarily intuitive to to be there for that friend. Like, how's it going? Like, how are you feeling about that? And I think that's another area where there's just a lot of fear where it's like, if someone lost a parent, right? We have a vocabulary for, hey, how's it been going with your mom? Like, how are you feeling? Whereas there's a lot more fear around asking about a suicide. And personally, I'm just a huge advocate for messiness. Yeah, me too. Like messy communication is better than none. You might overstep, you might say something wrong, but like in cracking the seal, it's there's gonna be there's gonna be growth. And I think what we see, this is a lot of the drama of six sermons, is people are like trying to reckon this, trying to find the words to ask other people about this, trying to find the words to grieve about this and are failing right but like the sort of underlying sentiment of this project is like hey it's okay to have these messy questions to make these mistakes by and large these characters like ultimately are like people we really root for yeah and come and come to love and so even though they might be screwing it up pastor alexis definitely does throughout the project as you'll hear we're still rooting for her and i think that's it's okay it's okay to communicate and like the priority the priority is to communicate in terms of the accountability piece right that's so complicated right because it's at some level we are responsible for each other and that's just if you really take that argument all the way to where it belongs that it gets into like questions of like capitalism frankly and like a culture of individualism that sort of fosters a sense of i'm responsible for my own so the, it's not like we're necessarily taught in our DNA that we're responsible for people that aren't like super close to our life. And so it's like, to what extent can you really fully fault someone for not taking action when they see suffering? Do you know, because we live in a society that doesn't encourage that if anything, somewhat discourages it sometimes. So that's like a big thought that I think (laughs) I'll just leave it there, but big, big relevant thought. And I think that's something that speaks to the strength of church communities. As we all know, as has been like documented so well, there are church communities in the United States that, that are sources of massive hatred and bigotry. And the fact that there's a, like the collectiveness is deployed and weaponized as a way to enact literal spiritual and emotional violence on others that said what we do see in some church communities certainly the community that i spent a lot of time with so to research this piece i spent a month at a lutheran church in ohio Mm -hmm. and just they gave me full access they let me sit on the board meetings in every element of that church and certainly in that community and i think there are many like it there is this 
sense of, you know what? I don't even like you, but you're part of this community and I can see that you're suffering and that you need to do something. We need to do something about it. And I think this is, when you look at, I just read this great book, Everyday Utopia has this Mm -hmm. crossed your radar. No, but I'm writing it down. I forget her name. I forget the author's name. She wrote a, a book called, I think it's called Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. This book, Everyday Utopia, is great. And it talks about just all these different spaces in which people have constructed societies that are more just and where they do look out for each other. So she brings up the church and certain different sects over the years that have built this, that talks about kind of intentional communities that flourished in the 70s, like these kind of things. It's like where societies have been constructed, where they do look out for each other, where that is the expectation, where that is the norm. And sadly, those exist as little islands within the larger culture of individualism, which doesn't encourage community care in the same way. So again, bringing it back, I think we should all strive for community care, but I think that striving is almost much more structural. It's like actually to get to a place where we care for someone who's suffering and take action for someone to be suicidal, like that end goal might have to start much farther back in terms of building a community that cares about each other. And then to return to, okay, the individual who's suicidal and what's their responsibility or accountability in this piece. And understandably, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about the quote unquote selfishness of suicide, the people left behind, the damage done. And I think there's been a lot of growth and work on that in terms of reframing that narrative so that it's, look, this person didn't want to die necessarily. It's that they could not continue. Yeah. And just like that frame, all of a sudden it's, it's not about you. And important work has been done there. But I do think in the piece, Six Sermons gets into this is like, how far do we, how far do we eliminate a sense of agency yeah. from the person who died. Yeah. And language is a really great space where this investigation is happening. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, the term commit suicide was, right. elim- was eliminated in the public discourse because yeah. commit has this connotation of sin and blame. And I think it's like such a massive sign of our improved understanding and sort of orientation to suicide that that has changed. Today, just within the last few years, by and large, your principal print publications, the New York Times, et cetera, have moved to language that say die by suicide. Yeah. And language like Jane killed herself has been like largely phased out. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not a grief expert. I pause at totally eliminating language such as kills himself yeah, because you ha- I think- have it in there you have it in six sermons yeah yeah and a lot of that's just because that's still what people, people say talk. by and large and so it's just credibility to like yeah. the 2023 idiom talk. but i also from a more i think it's i think it's really complicated to strip agency from the dead and i think that's a pretty big deal to tell identify a person's final decision as not their own right or identify it as not a decision and i think that's like a real tricky concept there because i think my friend would say no like i made that choice yeah and i wasn't out of my mind do you know what i mean and so there's this real gray area where it's certainly someone who takes their there's a degree of affliction obviously sickness like mental health But at the same time, anyway, so that's something I think a lot about as well. And I think it's an evolving conversation. I think we're going to hopefully find more language and really find more specificity. But yeah, again, just to bring it back to your question, who's responsible and who's accountable? I think that there's just no single answer. And I think for the person who dies, it could be a split. Like half of it could be like they made this decision and half of it could be like they were in no position to make a decision. One so of the it's this th- real like catch 22. One of the things I really appreciate you like going all the way around in it. It's, it's, I don't get to have this kind of conversation that often, particularly with people who are like, no. And I've talked about it from my own personal experience. I think 
what I was thinking about when you were talking is like, and it would be a different conversation we, if we stripped the pain out of it, right? Like when people talk about forgiveness, I'm always like, what would it be like if we just stripped the pain out of it? If you weren't still in pain, like then it wouldn't be hard and it would just be there. And I think one of the things that's really complicated about suicide is there's so much pain in it. And there's so much pain that is just going to have to cool down on its own. We can't resolve the pain because there aren't answers. And I can say that having worked with people who were actively suicidal and did not have answers to give. It's not that they didn't want to. And I'll say this out loud. I'll probably get in trouble for it. But I actually think part of what we don't do well around talking about suicidality is identify the obsessive thinking and the ruminations as their own experience. Because like in the same way that we often, people will say that person is depressed and they're grieving. They may have depressive features, but depression as a diagnostic means that you aren't fired up about life at all. And you think it's a little bit you and a little bit your life. And so you're not eating, you're not sleeping, you don't want to go to work, you don't want to have sex, all the stuff. With grief, you have all those symptoms, but it's because your person died. And so they are distinctly different in their motivations. And I think one of the things that people deeply do not understand is why anyone would decide to take their own life. But as someone who experienced relentless ruminations, I can understand it because if I had not received treatment to pull apart the images of my mother's dead body and the thought that like hit me in the head like a hammer, which is it's your fault that she died, I don't know what would have happened to me. And that was only like three months of having that happen. I was like, I need to check myself in somewhere. And I know having worked as a clinician that ruminations are a part of suicidality. And that sometimes ruminations have different qualities and different characteristics. But one of the things when people are really struggling with the death of someone by suicide, what I say is there is a manner of thinking that is very hard to describe. It's like being manic. Your brain has never been manic. But it is very painful to have a brain that does that. It's like truly painful. And so that's one of the things is I wish we were having a broader conversation about the actual features of what it's like to have to think like that and to be like that. Because people who have survived suicide attempts will say things like it was impulsive. And so people are like, oh my God, then you got to stay with them at all times because they might pick up a knife and hurt themselves. That's not what they mean by impulsive. That's not what they mean. And so again, it's if we could put a bow around what we're talking about today is we are only better for the more understanding, right? There's the box of 12 crayons and then there's the box of 124 crayons. The more colors, the better we get at being able to see the depth of the forest. And I just think that, I think that six sermons, because you, you invite us in to this, it's calamity and tragedy through the through flawed characters but multiple voices you actually give us a lot of what is hard to otherwise get that's 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 high praise for me that it feels so affirming to hear that <clears throat> i appreciate that and yeah i couldn't agree more and i think to the kind of earlier point about the bounds in terms of what we're able to say and not i feel like conversation around mental health is similarly bounded. I have bipolar disorder. I have bipolar one. I was diagnosed with this in 2005, maybe. Yeah. And I just remember that they, so it was, my diagnosis was pretty easy because I went off the grid and thought I was a prophet and there was true psychotic All the breaks. All yeah. the and so like bipolar one is like pretty recognizable and it's okay, this is bipolar one. But I remember learning about it and reading about it and educating myself on this like condition. And I was like, they only had at the time it's evolved, but there were like three different ways <laughs> that right. one could be bipolar. It was like bipolar one. And then it was like bipolar two, which like, frankly was just like, 
less intense adjectives. And then there was like cycling mania, which had a little bit of specificity, but it's just, we're talking like three crayons. That's right. You know? That's exactly like, three crayons. It's like how, like how far can we get with the primary colors? Not as far as we need to adequately care for people. And so I think that is an obstacle to some extent is this like the sort of attitude. And yeah, again, I feel like I could get in trouble here, but I think there's like an instinct or inclination or kind of underlying philosophy that our that contemporary psychiatry has a handle on it. Yeah. And there's just like a level of like sort of confidence, which I understand. It's like, we need to have confidence in our medical community like we that needs to be a pillar of like credibility and trust but it would be great if there was like also just a sentence in the dsm or whatever maybe there is that's just by the way we also don't know very much and we're really trying to get to 12 colors we're working on as hard as we can and the dream is to get to 64 we know that y'all are suffering and we know that like you might not fit in one of these three categories. And, and maybe it does say something like that, but I'm sure it's not foregrounded. And it's, it's like, not how we rely on the book for sure. I mean, people for want, sure. we crave answers and we crave codes. And I'm sure yeah. you know, there's some diagnostics in there about what pathological grieving looks like that makes grievers insane. We could bear arms over the fact that's in the book. But I will tell you as someone who's been a trauma therapist for 20 years, that most of the way that I learn is in conversation with colleagues, right? It's either informal training where people are like, this is what they tell us, but this is what our experience is. I'm always a little tiptoeing when I'm like, I think we should be talking about ruminations when we're talking about suicidality. But I also, I'm like, that's really what I think. That's really what I think. And so if I don't say it out loud, who's going to say it out loud? But when I look back at how I was trained and seen as an expert, and treated people. And now where I am 20 years later, I, it, it is all watercolor painting. It is all we're trying. It's not perfect lines here. It's we're trying not to ruin the white canvas. We're trying to put a picture here that makes sense so that people can get treatment. And I do think there are people who do phenomenal jobs, but it is not the same as taking a cell out of you, putting it under a microscope and saying, yep, that's cancer for sure. Instead, what we're saying is, okay, we have a lot of qualitative data that this is what this is, and this is how we treat it. But also sometimes we use this other medicine that's for something else. So I'm writing a clinical book right now, and I am very careful to say, and here is what the field says, are the time true tested versions of how we do treatment. And here was my experience with these Eastern medicine things that worked really well. And I think the field is starting with psychedelics as a trauma treatment. And I think the field is starting to peel apart a little bit where there has to be, I don't know, more pliability of our, around what we know and what we don't know. And it is so imperative that people who have personal experience, people often say to me, well, you're a grief expert. And I'm like, you're a grief expert too. I just have read more books. Like I just have a broader, like I, I'm up on a higher floor and I can see more of the city, but it does. You are a grief expert also. And what you and I always learn from people. And then I put that, I put it in my memory box so that when someone else needs that person's experience, I can say, I talked to somebody once and they said what you're feeling. So I think it's probably normal, or at least there's two of you. And that, you know, if that's only, it's the Shakespeare, like it will out. You have that line. It, it it has to. We have to be the people who are the conduits of them. And I just, I got to let you go. I could talk to you forever. I really was just so stunned at how beautiful this piece is, the uniqueness of it. I hope it goes everywhere. I hope people pay a lot of attention to it. I'm really grateful for it because I think it's a very, I think you could come into it on any level. Just listen to it while you're taking a walk and be like, oh, that was an interesting story. Don't hear that one often. And I think it can deeply teach you and give you a place to take all of your hardest, most fr French existential poetry kind of questions, meta deep thinking. I just feel like it is, it's all in here. And I, it, it's a masterclass. It's completely brilliant. And I am, I feel really grateful that I got to talk to you about it, that I, that there are actually still two episodes. I'm ecstatic about that. 
But I really hope you will just keep me posted about what you're working on. And if you ever want to have nine more hours of conversation, I want in. Can you tell folks, are there more things that you're working on or in festivals, having conversations other than doing podcasts? How can they find you if they want to know more? How can they find the show? Tell us all. Yeah. So the show, finding the show is what's most important in this moment. Just our best chance of getting a film or TV adaptation to get this story to a much wider audience is for people to find, rate, and review the show today. Because Do it. So you go to Audible. If you don't have Audible, you can get a free trial. It's really straightforward. And it's called Six Sermons. And yeah, that is this is the moment, these early weeks where they decide whether or not, oh, we've got something here. So let's throw some more money into the marketing. And just the entertainment industry is so fickle. So it's like, a push now very well could be the difference between yeah. whether there's an adaptation and like an adaptation could save people's lives. So that's a big well, deal. Help us out, people. Go listen. Yeah. You haven't listened already. Rate but, review. Tell then, yeah. My name is Asa Merritt, ASA and Merritt with two R's and two T's. Like I'm on the internet. You can find me on Instagram. And we'll link everything of, in the show notes. Yeah, too. link everything Make in it, the we'll show notes. Make it easy yeah. for y'all. Exactly, exactly. And then First Rodeo is the production company, okay. which I'm a part of behind the project. Well, so those I'm are all go, the kind of tasks. I'm going to go yell at the top of my lungs about this. I'm not joking. Yeah. It was completely stunned by it. I think it is. It reminded me of being in college and when I went to boarding school, just like really smart smartness that I wanted to... I wanted to have eight weeks of discussion about this character and that character. Yeah. Why are they the ones and how come? Yeah, I, I just. I really appreciate the kind words and especially from you and your expertise and your experience. The fact that it resonated really oh, means a lot great. to me. It's totally great. So just keep my number. If okay. you need anything, call us. Thank you so much for this hour. It really was I love doing this podcast, but there are some episodes where I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I'm going to, this is going to make my day. And this did in fact make my day. So thank you, Asa. It was so nice meeting you. And yeah, yeah and let's stay connected. Good luck with everything. I'm going to be crossing my fingers that I see this starring actors that I, starring your voice actors, because some of them are really amazing stage actors too. Yeah. Take care. Thanks okay. for the project. And I hope we hear more from you very soon. Okay. Thank okay. you. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye.